Digital branding expert and former Unilever executive, Nemrata Kamdar is also the founder of Planair, a clean skincare brand empowering young women to enjoy taking care of their skin. Planair has an incredible story and I cannot wait for you all to hear it. Hi everyone and welcome to Founder Beauty, a podcast dedicated to beauty entrepreneurs built some of the biggest brands today and where we learn exactly how they did it. We'll cover some of their most intimate stories, their path to success, and how they overcame the obstacles along the way. I'm Akash Mehta, CEO and co-founder of Fable & Name, a modern hair wellness brand inspired by ancient Indian beauty secrets. Building Fable & Maine has been an incredible journey so far, and I decided to launch this podcast as a founder keen to learn and connect with fellow beauty brand founders around the world. I believe in collaboration over competition, as I'm using this platform as a way to hopefully help and inspire each other what can be quite a tough and lonely journey. So if you are an entrepreneur or simply just curious how to build a brand, this podcast is perfect for you. Without further ado, let's welcome our guest for today, Namrata Kamdar. She launched Planair in 2019 from a genuine need for safe, effective and enjoyable skincare after suffering from burnout herself. On a mission to empower young women to lead more balanced lives, Planair says it all in its beautiful name. Derived from the French expression for in the open air, Namrata has created a brand that has truly advocates emotional well-being and mental health within the beauty space. A branding expert and former global brand manager for the likes of Dove, Comfort and Lacme, Namrata is also a self-professed innovation junkie. And I love that she's spreading the message that beauty can be as much about self-discovery as it is the end result of the skincare routine. The same can be said for building a brand, and as founders, the journey is such a rewarding experience, despite all the challenges along the way. So I cannot wait to go deeper into all of this with Naratha today and learn more about Planera as well. So Namrata, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was a very eloquent introduction. Well, thank you. Thank you. I do have um, an amazing side person, Priyanka, who basically helps me with all the stuff. So I have to give credit with credits to you. Um, but, uh, I want to start a little bit sort of, um, with my, I want to get into the story and the branding, but I always ask the same question to all my guests. So I think if you are a listener, you know, what's going to come, who in a nutshell is Namata? I think in a nutshell, I'm like a free spirit. I think I probably didn't know that about myself early on in my career. And I think that's why I've sort of taken the path that I have because I felt pretty constrained by my circumstances that kind of led me to do what I'm doing. But I think, I think I'm a creator. I think I, I want to create new ideas and concepts and I don't want to do what everyone else is doing. I feel like there are two kinds of people, one kind of person who feels safe in a crowd and wants to move with the crowd. And you see that all the time in the corporate world and in, in general in life. And I think that I'm in some ways the opposite of that. I kind of want to go, against the crowd a little bit and yes I'm a free spirit and I'm like highly independent and autonomous and I guess that is like, like a defining characteristic of who I am in a way I love that I, I think also you know having known you for a while I can I can see that that's something that you also want to like diffuse into the brand as well so we're going to go into that as well but um let's start with Bailey so can you tell us a little bit about those early young years um there's memories of beauty growing up that has stuck with me throughout time. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think my first beauty trope or archetype or role model is obviously, like it is for a lot of people, their their mothers. 
you know, it was, this was 1978. We lived in a small town in Virginia called Falls Church. My father and mother both worked for the Indian government. They're both IS officers, but then my father uh, had this incredible opportunity in 1976 to move his family to Washington, D.C. So we lived near Georgetown within Ben Falls Church, Virginia. My mom every day would drop us to school in a sari. She would, you know, wear her sari, her bindi, her beautiful pearls, um, and this big winter coat. So I was the only child being dropped off to school, like to nursery school. <laughs> to, you know, we went to public school uh, with a mom that looked completely different. My mom using you know, ponds. Tresor was her favorite fragrance. I still remember that. I remember as a young child going through my grandmother, we'd go home and see my grandmother and going through her jewelry box. And so I think those are the first sort of memories of beauty. And I think like Indian women, especially for the time, I think 70s and 80s, there was a very natural look, you know, like coal and a fresh face. And always, there was always the red lipstick. Like I remember that with my parents. And I think lipstick has gone up and down and it's in style, it's not in style. But I always remember that that was like the dramatic, you know, like the red lipstick or the maroon lipstick or those typical shades that you find South Asian women wearing. But it was very beautiful and very artistic in a way. So, you know, and then as I got older, I remember I remember when the first body shop opened in Falls Church, Virginia. And I remember going inside. And then later when I was in business school, I bought Anita Roddick's book. And I think she was like, a like I, I remember that. I remember thinking about, well, I'm going to study business. I'm going to, I'm going to study what it is to make a business, how to be a, like a business person. And um, I remember reading about her journey and how she started her company and how she always kind of embedded social justice within every one of her brands. So I think that was like an early, some of that I looked at as, as a role model and kind of what she was doing was very iconic for the time. The way that the store looked, the models they used, it was all very different, differentiated. Sure, I didn't know. That's so cool. That's uh, this is why I love asking these questions because you always don't know the, the the little moments that inspire you throughout time. Um, but what I also wanted to find out a little bit more about was, so you grew up in India, you went to Delhi University, um, you studied business and economics, and then you went to Texas. So you had quite a lot of experience all over, you know, US, now you're in the UK. Tell us a little bit about sort of that and also your kind of perception of beauty as you discovered all these different um, areas of life and countries. So, yeah, yeah I, was, I was two years old when we moved uh, from India in the 70s to Falls Church. So the very idyllic upbringing, very suburban. I remember taking, you know, the, the subway to see my father on H Street in Washington, D.C., where he worked with the World Bank. It was this huge amazing set of people that he worked with from all over the world because uh, he's he's an economist. That's what he he did at the time for the World Bank on infrastructure projects. We lived there until I was 11. And then, you know, you asked a lot about role models and, and, and you asked about beauty, but who's been, I remember like my mom saying to my dad, like, so we have our children, our three kids, and, you know, uh, they're now at an age where they don't need me as much. So I think I'm actually go back to India and I'm going to go and pursue the career that I wanted before I became a mother. So my mom left, you know, she, my grandmother came and lived with us. My mom left and she went back to work in India because she didn't feel like the U.S. was offering what she wanted for her career. She was doing this for her to pursue her career. She went back in to work for the Indian government after 11 years, I think it was. And I remember that really sticking with me as a child, like, my mom's purpose is, of course, to be a great mother and to, you know, be a wife. But her purpose is beyond that. Her purpose is 
to do something, to create her own niche, to be a leader. And my mom is like a very, has been a very central figure in my life, just in terms of, you know, she gave the IAS exam the first, the on the very first go, she was, I think in the top five people, all India, her name was on Indian radio and she's done some amazing things in India. And now she runs a charity. She runs an orphanage. So she's been kind of a central force in our life. But eventually my father moved us back because of my mother's career. So that also stuck with me. It's like right now, like we compromise, we're 10 years here. And actually I'm going to move back because your mother is happier there pursuing her career. So we moved, all of us moved back to India. And then I spent the ages of 12 to sort of um, 21 in India, which is, was obviously very traumatic, but it's such a, it's such a good thing that they did that because I, I just don't think that I would have the same appreciation for India that I have now. Like I can speak the language. I'm very comfortable there. I can cook Indian food. I mean, there's so many little things that you pick up because that's kind of a central time. Like adolescence is a central time in your life. And I think I really, you know, understood India in a completely different way. But then I also obviously had this, these ideals that had come from living in, in my formative years in the U.S. And then I went off to do my MBA. Um, I went to Austin, Texas, which was, you know, really cool. Michael Dell <laughs> graduated from UT and he, he was setting up Dell computer in his, off of his living room couch or whatever. The year I graduated, Enron went bankrupt. Um, Anderson Consulting went under. <laughs> Crazy, like all of those. Wow. Um, yeah. And so then I went to work um, in Atlanta for the Coca-Cola company, which was kind of like a really cool experience. Uh, there are no water fountains in the, in the Coke building in Atlanta. <laughs> Every morning people right. came to meetings with a Diet Coke. It was, it was, it was crazy. Like how so embedded the culture was. <laughs> um, but it was, a, it was a fantastic training ground. And then I decided to actually move back to India, which was, again, I think looking at it in hindsight, I could have just stayed in the States, but, you know, my husband, well, my boyfriend at the time, my husband was based in India. So I moved back to Mumbai. I got my first job at, at Unilever. Um, this is like 2004. And then I worked at Unilever for five years there, um, which was really was like fortune at the bottom of the pyramid. It was like going to consumers' homes, explaining the category, really understanding, obviously, you know, for Unilever, India is one of its at the time, I mean, even probably now, it's one of their biggest businesses. And also the growth rates are huge. So worked with some amazing people uh, in Unilever in, in India. I had the privilege of working on the Lakme brand, which is, it's the largest beauty brand in India by volume. Like if you look at it, not by value, but if you look at it by volume, in just in terms of number of products sold, they're the biggest in face care, lipstick, nail polish, all of that. Um so they were acquired, obviously, by Unilever, but I worked in that company. And then my husband decided to leave India to go do his MBA, and he eventually got a job here in London. So at that point, Unilever sent me to London as an expat, which was honestly fantastic again. So I worked for another five years uh, building these global teams. I worked on the global team for laundry and fabric conditioner, and then on the dumb global team, which was amazing, like incredible, to have the opportunity to extend Dove into baby care, which also coincided with myself, with motherhood for me. Like basically I had a child when I came back from maternity leave, my daughter, when I came back from maternity leave, I then worked on extending Dove into baby care, which was an awesome experience, like 
in terms of learning and all of the work that you have to put in to be able to commercialize a brand at that level. Um, so yeah, it's like 16 years. And then I left Unilever and I went to work in um, venture, like at a portfolio company for Unilever Ventures, which was also extremely interesting and a great early like experience in entrepreneurship, I think. So yeah, that's like probably a very long answer. Sorry. I, no, no, it's great. It's, it's great because I want to, it, it really is important. I think as much as, we, you know, we're now we're going to talk about the brand, but it's really important to people to know the story behind before, because I think it just enriches it, but also it shows sometimes there's a lot of free work without realizing when we create brands that we're training ourselves for, right? I'm sure it wasn't like when you, you entered um, all the companies you worked for in the past that you had this like clear vision of plein air, right? But it just eventually when you create it, you're like, oh, that helped me, that helped me, that helped me. And uh, sometimes we need to not know to know, if that makes sense. Um, uh, but I, I do want to talk about how plein air started. So I guess the stage is yours again. Um, what is sort of those early seeds that like, were integral in creating Planet as, as we see it today? I think the beauty industry had just shifted and changed so much. There were big changes coming just in terms of digital innovation, you know, that model, that, that very pushy sales model that we had seen, you know, like you launch something, you put it in a store, was moving to an engagement model. And people were leaning forward to have conversations with brands and they were fed up of being fed stories about brands or, you know, they could switch off a brand. They could switch off advertising. Everything was in somebody else's control. Like it wasn't a one-way conversation anymore. And around the time that I had been working on um, sort of baby care and then eventually I did some work on face care as well, I was just seeing you know, like a lot of noise on the internet. This is like on moms that, you know, mothers discussing like in pregnancy, what's the right thing to eat? What's the right thing to, you know, this is around the time, like pre-goop, like people in their thirties and forties were talking about ingredients in a completely different way. You know, Unilever had acquired a number of businesses that had a different approach to ingredients. Myself, when I was looking at clinicals across skincare, face care, some of the work we did on hair care, we were being very specific about what materials we were choosing to use. We obviously didn't want to indict the rest of Unilever's portfolio, but at the same time, there was definitely an obligation just based off of what we were seeing online of people becoming much more, because of digital transparency, people becoming much more aware of what was going into their bodies, obviously rates of cancer and things like, there was just more digital transparency around ingredients. People were like reading inkies themselves. So I could see that that was one big piece, like consumers were becoming really aware and forms. They weren't just taking things at face value. I think a younger customer was definitely driving the conversation. There's like, there was this sense when we talked to young women and men of this, this ideology or this, this, you know, meeting these more idealistic goals around sustainability, environmentalism, slow beauty, anti-fast fashion, alongside digital transparency. So I was given this book by the, it was the chairman of Habas. I went to one of these meetings where the chairman of Habas spoke and he wrote this book, Who Cares Wins? And I read that book cover to cover. It was all about like how social purpose is a business goal. So if you look at companies that, uh, and you track their shareholder value, companies that embed social purpose at the heart of their business, it's not just about doing good. Social purpose truly builds loyalty, deeper consumer connections, and builds shareholder value for brands over time. So I could see there were so many different 
shifts happening in terms of transparency, you know, this new idealistic customer, less dependence on big companies creating things and pushing them out there to big retailers, a more bespoke approach around, you know, what people like. Also the innovation cycles, being able to like get feedback from a customer, put it into a product, create small batches of the product, test it and relearn, you know, like a lean UX way of creating things rather than the whole 52 week lead time and all, you know, the board board decisions being involved in what you make, which is the traditional, like if you look at consumer products, the traditional approach is to do lots of research for years and years and years, come up with some kind of molecule. And then, you know, all that was turning over on its head. And honestly, I, I think that the big companies are really struggling with that, like because of the fragmentation and because there have been so many successful independent brands. I mean, your brand is a great example of one. I think it's really hard. All of these shifts were going on. And that's, I think, kind of that was the reason that I felt that there could be a business opportunity there based on everything I was reading, seeing, and doing. And so obviously that's the right brain and, and rational reason for why plein air happened but i think at a much more deeper level i as a human being was i was really struggling and i don't know if you can you can empathize akash but do you find like with the upbringing that you've had like coming from a south asian background or a south asian family like pressure to conform in certain ways have you ever felt that i feel like you know, I'm being very fortunate, right? My parents, perhaps not, but the society, yes, that makes sense. So, and unfortunately, the parents do take weight on society. So I felt very lucky to be in such a, um, I think when you have an entrepreneurial family, like my dad was in beauty for 40 years, you know, he had to deal with the beauty talk 20 years, 30 years before me. So imagine at that time when um, an Indian man was entering the beauty industry. Yeah, you know, he already based adversities and thoughts and thinking when you're not the, t- the status engineer, lawyer, you know. I think naturally almost is easier for me to enter beauty and as do my thing because he's a bit. Uh, but even then, you know, there were still some fragments of this person saying this, that person saying this, and this will be easier and you should just have, you know, do what you did. And maybe subconsciously I've done stuff because of that. You know, like I studied engineering for four years. I've always told myself, and I still do, that I love math and love physics and this is why I did it. But subconsciously in school, it was always understood, you know, choose certain subjects because they're better. Do a course in this because it's going to make you more successful, probably, you know, if you don't know what you want to do in life. And I think that's the, the, the problem I think many kids face nowadays when you have this societal kind of conformities. What do you think on that? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, so that was really like, for me, kind of a crisis moment, but kind of I remember like on my 39th birthday, like this is, you know, I just given, I was pregnant at 37 with my second child. You know, I had, I'd had, you know, you know, I'm very fortunate to have an amazing husband who is such a great support to me. He's a fantastic dad. He's, you know, my best friend. We never run short of things to say to each other. This is after 23 years of being married. Like I'm 46. We've been together for like more than half of our lives. So I'm very fortunate in that aspect. I had a lot of support at home. Um, but I had gotten married at the right time, had my kids at the right time, had the career at the right time, blah, 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 did all the ticking the boxes. And then as I approached 39-ish, that's when it kind of all just went a bit crazy. Like, I I just remember feeling so depressed, so unfulfilled, so unhappy, but I could I could see that it was me splitting from my old self. Like now when I look back on it, 
I can see that that was when I split from who I thought I was to who I'm now and who I'm going to be. And it was very painful at the time. Uh, but I'm afterwards, I felt like I had been freed from a jail and I could breathe and I'm, I could just be who I was. What happened was I just, I, I felt that who I was as an individual would not be accepted by where I was at the time. So I was expected to act a certain way, behave a certain way, do certain things. And that wasn't making me happy. And it wasn't who I was. It wasn't being true to, you know, I do, I want to, you know, get the corner office and be on the board and wear this certain look and, and conform to things that only come up with ideas that are just about acceptable to somebody in a, in a very sort of boxed in. If I felt very boxed in, I felt like being in this career was like being in a lukewarm bath. I wasn't able to create something fresh and something new. And I would have these ideas and these visions, but then I'd explain it to someone and they would look at me like, like I was crazy or like that would be so risky and then get me the data to support it. And I just felt trapped, you know, but I think I kept thinking that I have to try harder. I have to try harder to make these ideas and myself be accepted even more. I want to try, I want to try more and more and more to be accepted, you know, like to get to the next thing. And the more I did that, the more anxious I got, the more unwell I felt. And then one day I went to work and I just, I literally got there and I saw like my desk and everyone that, and it was like in a movie, like I just, everything became exaggerated and I just couldn't breathe. I didn't, I went into the conference room and I remember like the top, like the top, top, like head of the business, I had a very close relationship with like basically what I guess you call the dub, the, the senior leadership team, a very close relationship with the PA there. Right. And I remember just saying to her, like, I need to leave. She's like, what do you mean you need to leave? She's, I was like, I can't stay here anymore. Like I physically cannot stay here. I have to go. And I went into a conference room and she brought me some water. And I said, this is my last day in the business. This is up just what, 17 years. And I just walked out the door and I put my pass in the thing and I went to occupational health and I said, I'm signing myself off. I don't think I can do this anymore. Thank you for being so open and vulnerable with us because I think it's important that people normalize stories like this because it's, it's important to know we're not alone. I can tell you from my experience in corporate world, uh, it's very similar, but you sometimes think very singularly. You think that, oh, is it me? Is it, is it something I, is it my problem, my issue? But actually... Sometimes it's, it's, it's nothing you can control. The only thing you can control is what you do with yourself after. It's like, do I leave this situation? Do I leave this energy and focus on something new? And it's not easy, especially after, what, 17 years um, in that company and then taking a decision. And sometimes it's a gut and sometimes you haven't, you don't need to spend too long to, to think about it. You just know. And when you know, you're, you're going to make a decision. And then you go on to the next, you know? I think the biggest thing that I can take out from what you just said is that you've just demonstrated to me, like in, in what you just said right now, it's about taking back control. It's always, I think for me, that sort of victim narrative, like, why is this happening to me? Why am I not getting where I'm supposed to be? Why do people, and actually say, well, actually, baby, this is all part of the process of growth. And actually, if something bad happens, no matter what it is, you lose a relationship, you lose, you know, uh, money, you lose a business venture. I think at that moment in time, it's very hard or you, you leave a company because you're not getting to where you expect to go. You shouldn't ask yourself, well, why is this happening to me? I'm so unlucky. You should be asking the question to ask at that point in time is, where am I going? Because there's 
But there's a reason that that's happened. Yeah. And you have to trust you're on a path to get to the next thing that will bring you happiness, that will bring you joy. But staying in a bad situation, what you just said, is not the answer. It's growing to, it's saying no and that growth that comes from it. And I know it's really hard sometimes to, uh, to, to leave situations. There's a lot more at play. There's a lot more, you know, whether you're in a company, you have a financial obligation, you need to stay in, even though you can't, you know, take the risk to leave. And in a relationship, it's hard sometimes. But I think um, the more we normalize conversations around it, the more we'll have a surround, like a supporting system that will help you as well to make you feel not alone in those decisions. I think that's one of my main days as well, I feel is important is it gets more nerve scary for people to take decisions because they feel alone in that, right? And they don't feel... Um, and also that judgment, like you said, them. coming back... Like, judgment, I, exactly. That's what I would tell my 14-year-old self is that don't maybe... And that's what I tell my daughter, like, don't just follow the crowd. Don't worry so much about what people think. If you're going to be so stressed out by whether you're liked and what people think, you'll never be true to yourself. So in a sense, for the first 20 years, I was like so worried about finding approval from people in senior positions at work or being accepted or whatever that I kind of lost who I was. And I decided I'm going to stand up for who I am. And I have great ideas. I have a bigger vision. And I was kind of almost constrained by it. And I'm going to go after what I want to do rather than worrying about pleasing people or what other people think, like what society thinks. That's beautiful. I'm Now I think it's perfect that we to talk about um, the products because the mission is so clear in the why, but you have incredible products that deserve its time as well. So tell us a bit about the current range that people can find today and where to find it as well. I think the number one place to find it is plenair.co. Um, though we have good relationships with uh, retailers, we're available at places like Skins Cosmetics, uh, which is out in um, Amsterdam. We're available at Space and K, of course, uh, Credo. So we're available in smaller stores. We haven't made the shift yet to really big retail stores, but we're available in more boutique and independent retailers, as well as on our own website with the way that things have shifted in in online. It's more expensive than ever to acquire customers online. You know, I think we went through a phase between 2014 and 2019-ish where, and then obviously COVID happened, which kind of had this big effect on what was already, I think, a growing space. And it forced a lot more yeah. people to go online. So it's just much more competitive. It's much more saturated online. You know, um, iOS 14, all of the GDPR regulations, things have become more and more complicated with digital acquisition of, of customers. So I think as much as people want to build an online D2C unicorn, like it's harder and harder to do. And I don't think that kind of thing exists yeah. anymore either. I think everything is online, everything is digital, and it's become kind of a right to play rather than being something out of the ordinary. We wanted to create very, you know, these these product platforms that had their own personality and character. Same with the skin frosting idea that came from, you know, it's just tossing ideas back and forth with my chemist and like say, okay, well, what if we had a moisturizer and a plumper and a mask and lots of things all in one to create a product approach that felt a little bit different. And I think that's really resonated. I think people like products to have a personality, you know, the naming, the ingredients, the story, how you use it. You know, skin frosting as a franchise can extend into hair frosting and body frosting and lip frosting. And there's so many different ways that you can extend that franchise when the time is right. But you know, we really mm -hmm. wanted to create products that had cultural and emotional resonance 
because there's so many products out there and nobody needs new products. But when you find one great product like rose jelly, I remember very early on, you know, people were always like, oh, we just love the rose jelly. We love the rose jelly. I was trying to get to like, what is it in the rose jelly that's so amazing? And people were like, well, one girl was like, oh, it reminds me of Turkish delight. And another person was like, well, it's just, you know, the scent is so pleasing, you know, the idea of the sugar and the rose water, it's all very pleasing. So I think there's something in sensory pleasure also that we looked at. And also one of the biggest things that we found in the research that we did was if we're wanting to connect beauty and emotional well-being, a lot of the people that we were talking to were like, when I take off my makeup, it's like, oh, it's one of the worst things. And there was this girl in the UK and she was like, I always put on like some weird reality TV and I sit with my wipes and I have to do it. And we were like, well, actually, if you look forward to look, taking off your makeup, if you had a beautiful, pleasurable texture and a sensory that felt nice, a ritual, a lovely flannel, wouldn't you look forward to it? And that's a way to look after yourself and do it correctly. And I think that's kind of the foundation of all of our products. It's about embedding that sensory pleasure. It's about taking time for yourself. It's about enjoying the process. And the products have their own personalities and their own way of communicating that makes them memorable and easy to find. Like It's like a like lighthouse brand. Like It's something that you, you go to the next door for. You don't just give up if you can't find it you you want to go and find it somewhere else it's not in the first store right. thanks for sharing that and, and what's sort of the the future on the horizon for Panet? is you mentioned a few things that could be you know on the horizon like other categories and i i think that idea of body frosting and hair frosting could be amazing like we've just launched this actually today we've just launched a serum so it's a good good time to shout it out um, a serum called aesthetic it is something we've been working on for three years. It's a triple glycolic. It has beautiful ingredients, African marula, tropical passion flower. It's a beautiful texture, completely free of silicones. You know, not to talk about our competitors, but similar glycolic serums that contain dimethicone as their second ingredient sell for hundreds of dollars upwards. We're pricing ours at 39. It has a beautiful texture and sensory. So, you know, the future is, I think you just have to be true to who you are and to your customer and keep making amazing products and try and not get distracted by what your competition is doing. But yeah, we want to eventually go, I think in the future we could go into hair care or body care or face care or do collaborations with amazing brands, you know. Um, there's nothing to stop us doing that. But I think fundamentally this idea of plein air, which is around emotional health, well-being, thinking in an open way about beauty is kind of timeless. And so yeah. you want to keep embedding that idea and, and hopefully from an investment standpoint, I think that makes us a much more efficient brand to back and a much more efficient company um, operationally than our competitors. 100%. I, and well, congratulations on the new launch. I'm just uh, I'm on the website now. So I'm going to be purchasing mine straight after. I'm so excited. That's like, so exciting to, to know that, um, something that you worked on for so long when it comes out it's just like you know it's like the birth of a baby it's really exciting do you ever get the same question like do you get the same like nerves when launching a new product because you know people think face does it get easier and i'm like i don't know i don't think it gets easier you really still wonder how is it going to perform you know yeah yeah I, yeah i think i think that's again comes back to the whole whole thing around worrying what people think and like the big company approach like you said you were, is testing everything and testing and making sure everybody likes it and I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned you know is if you launch something that everyone likes 
and no one hates. You know, it's like vanilla. But you have to kind of be, I think you have to kind of push yourself to be a little bit quirky, be a little bit. And I think the time has gone where consumers just accept anything from a big company and they take it at face value and they buy it. They really like this idea of personality and ideology and people's personalities coming through in, in, you know, in, in products. And I think there's a real opportunity to do that. I think, you know, like with Fable in Maine, I think, you know, you're elevating hair care from, you know, like, hey, just wash your hair, you know, whatever, it's to keep it clean, it's to keep it, or like a, a cosmetic benefit alone to something which is, again, very ritualistic. It's about you. Um, it's bringing in things from history. Um, it's making, it's raising awareness in a completely different way about the hair care category. So it's your lens. It's a different lens on a category that's been going for such a long time. And I think people, that really resonates with people. So, so I think it's, it's in some ways, it's a really good time in consumer, you know, we have the opportunity to have so many different options as a customer and be able to buy from so many different, different brands and, you know, different people from different diverse backgrounds coming in and talking about, it's not just one person, you know, the typical makeup of a board in these publicly listed companies, it's not just one way of doing things. There's so many different ways. So I think giving license to that is, is great. And there's, and every way has its pros and cons. So like, I think if we just kind of take out, I always say, take out this pressure of, did I make the right decision? There's never a right. There is whatever feels right in that moment, but it could also, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just about feeling good in your decisions and then going on to the next one, the next one and not overthinking it. Cause if I, I, I don't know about you, but like as a founder, I feel if I, question too much my decisions i'll never sleep at night because there's hundreds of decisions every day every minute just to keep on making so the only way to stay sane as you grow and scale is just have confidence and whatever i decide in my heart in my gut is what i was meant to do and if it didn't turn out great that's okay i've learned something right it's not meant to be my um something to 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 dwell on it's something to to actually celebrate because it's a moment to grow and it's a moment to, as you said, growth. And it's a moment to, to accept it's life, right? This is normal. You have to trust your instinct, you know? Your instinct yeah. is what makes the product special and interesting. And, and we're living in a time where people want to buy into people. They're not wanting to buy into anonymous yeah. formulations. They want to buy into your yeah. brand, your charitable mission, your ideology. We can do that. It's so true. Well... Sort of now we're going to wrap up and go into firewall questions. Um, and, uh, but before that, I do have a question, which is, um, imagine you can, you probably know what's coming. Desert Island situation. So you're invited to a founder media retreat, but you can only take one Glenair product with you. What is that go-to you're going to be bringing with you? Well, it's so hard to choose as you would know. It's like choosing between your children, I but I think so my favorite, I one know. of my favorite products right now is plenary skin frosting. I think as I'm getting older, you know, it's just the most amazing texture. Makeup artist taught me a little trick. He's like, oh, you, you use it and you use it at night as a mask and you wipe it away with a flannel. Well, I use it on my models on the runway. Like I use it as a makeup base. So he's actually putting it on models just before he does their makeup, you know? So I think it's, I, I love the idea that you have, it's like a little black dress. You dress it up, dress it down. Like I like products that are efficient and you can use them in different ways and come up with different ways of using them. So that would, I would say that that's my favorite one. 
Oh, very good. Um, so there are five word questions. This is the first thing that comes to your mind. So the first question is, what's another beauty brand that you're currently loving right now? I love Say Beauty. <laughs> I like their formulations. I, I, I just, uh, there's, uh, and, uh, the other thing I, I just love about them is that they're so efficient. It's a capsule collection, yeah. beautifully made. Their products work. You know, they're not making a sing and dance about, they're just, they do what they say on the tin. And, and sadly, they're, they're not available here, but I, I really like uh, Say. Yeah, but they're available in cult beauty. So that's Are a, they? Okay, good tip. Yeah. Um, good tip. So that's a little tip there, because a lady came for her, uh, her cult beauty launch. So uh, yeah, they came for that. So Amazing! Uh, yeah, I really, I really like. I, I love the brand. And I think you guys should do a collab. You guys have like synergetic colors and, and energy. True. As like, yeah, you yeah, you're should. right. We're yeah. very um, uh, complementary, I guess. My next question is, what um, sort of like a guilty pleasure of yours? A guilty pleasure of mine would be having the space and time to cook a meal from scratch. So that means planning it, going and buying the ingredients. If I'm baking a cake, it's like, what's the best? Like, what's the most bougie chocolate I can find? What are the most bougie fruits? And like really taking my time to find those ingredients and maybe cooking it with my daughter and putting it all together. And I don't know, inviting someone over, making you know, a beautiful table, just little things like little time and having the time and space to do that. Because I think with COVID, like we lost like this whole personal interaction having a dinner party. Like I bought Alison Roman's book recently. I don't know if you follow Alison Roman, but it's called Nothing Fancy. And it's all about this like cool aesthetic where it's like you just throw stuff together and it's nothing fancy, but at the same time, it's unusual. So I like this, um, having the time and space to do that. That's a luxury. Yeah. Oh, that's a good. And then my next question is, is like, I, I don't know if you, it's sometimes hidden, sometimes it's not hidden, but do you have like a hidden talent? I think, so. I think, fa- like, I love fashion. I'm wearing like Catherine, beautiful yeah. Catherine Hamlet t-shirt for you today, but I love, I've always been fascinated. Like, I think I could be a great stylist, I feel like. A stylist or maybe like a buyer, I don't know. I've always had, I've always been drawn to art, culture, and fashion. Like design, I think that's, I'm not a designer, but I love design. I love art. I go. love I the process that. of yeah. creating designs. So yeah, design. Design. Um, my next question is, what or where is your happy place? This is going to sound so cliche, but my happy place is Equinox right now. Like I just, yeah. I'm obsessed with it. Yeah, I, I'm now eight, eight years a member there. Yeah. I just, when I walk in, I feel like I'm just calm, you know? Do you go to the High Street Ken one or which one? Yeah, I go to the one that I know a lot of, a lot of people go to the Bishop's Gate and stuff, which is supposed to be like the posh one or whatever. But I just know everyone there. They're like a family. Everyone wears black. You don't have to dress up. You just, it's just, you just go in. Nobody bothers you. I can feel myself just, you know, all my tension slips away literally as if something happened to Equinox, I would be so depressed. <laughs> and my last question is if you weren't a beauty entrepreneur, what would the Rata be doing right now? So I've thought about this question quite a lot because I think, you know, I love the work that I do with Planair. And it's it's very creative. Yeah. It gives me license to honestly combine motherhood with work because it is very yeah. hard as you get more senior in your career to combine family time well-being time, time for yourself, um, 
you know, I have aging parents, time for your parents to look after them and a huge career. So I feel, you know, very grateful that I have Planner. It allows me to combine so many things to stay present and be happy as a human being. That's the most important thing to me. That's the promise that I made to myself when I was 39. Um, but I think I would do something in the space of philanthropy. I recently joined the board of the Anna Freud Foundation and they're doing just incredible work. Obviously, um, you know, uh, Her Royal Highness, uh, the Princess of Wales, she's the main patron. Um, they do a lot of work with early years and trauma in children. They do amazing research with, you know, the likes of Yale, UCL. It's an incredible organization with such a storied history, rich history. Our new launch, Aesthetic, is in partnership with Anna Freud as well. So we are getting uh, a set of proceeds from uh, Aesthetic sales because this is, Aesthetic is all about hope. The tagline for Aesthetic is, it will be more beautiful than you could ever imagine. So it's this idea that you'll wake up to even more beautiful skin or a more beautiful future. It's kind of open. So this 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 whole space of mental health, philanthropy, well-being for children is something that I feel very passionately about. My mother, as you know, is all like I talked about, is already has been involved in that from a career perspective. Um, she worked in, on different issues with related to women's issues in India. And now she has her foundation, which is, you know, looks after uh, orphans. So I think, you know, I think something that enables me to give my time to those kinds of things in, in a really tangible way where I can look into like, without a like look into governance or marketing or really use my skills and what I've learned to give back in some meaningful way is I think what I would be doing if I wasn't doing this. That's why I, I always ask that question. Cause I think it's good to remind ourselves. And it's great that you've been thinking about that too. So um, kudos to everything you're doing. I'm just so excited to see the future for Planair and, and yourself and obviously we'll, we'll be in touch but for everyone listening how can they continue to follow you and the brand yeah well you can find me on Instagram I'm not as like regular as I used to be as far as Instagram is concerned but you know I have a, I have a loyal fo- small and loyal fo- following there so I'm at Namrata K on Instagram LinkedIn Namrata Nayar Kamdar I do a lot of LinkedIn now I've, and yeah just yeah just DM me drop me a DM and don't forget to follow Planair on Instagram and on LinkedIn too I'll put all the links in the summary so people can just tap straight away and uh, Namrata I'll see you very soon in person when you still coffee or something because I just found the corner uh, but till then thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and all your wise words really appreciate it thank you so much for inviting me and taking the time to listen hope you enjoyed this episode of founded beauty as much as i had making it and if you did please share it with a friend who you think will love it too founded beauty is available on all podcast platforms such as apple Podcasts, spotify amazon music Podcasts, the acast app and many more and i'm also very proud to be part of the acast creator network so be sure to follow the podcast so you can get episodes as soon as they drop we really appreciate every single follow listen share and review it truly goes such a long way and helps us reach new listeners. Stay tuned for the next episode of Founded Beauty and don't forget to subscribe and follow so you can be notified when it drops.